it's all about leadership. It is the leadership of the company that needs to prioritize and create a sales focus. I believe that organizations are successful when they are sales centric. There are arguments out there where people say, well, they have to be customer centric, which is correct. But companies only generate income when somebody is selling business ownership, the CEO, the founder needs to create a sales centric culture where everyone understands that everyone ultimately services clients and as a way to get there, services sales. If you are the director of sales, the VP of sales, the chief sales or chief revenue officer of an organization, your job is to make sure that salespeople don't make mistakes. Whatever mistakes they're making is lack of leadership. If they're not cut out for the job, if they're an ill fit, guess who hired them? If they're not following a sales process, guess who's responsible for ensuring that the sales process is followed? It's all about leadership. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun about all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Henning Schwinnem. Henning is the co-founder and managing partner of Vindux LLC. Vindux helps companies grow sales leadership capital by matching them with the sales leader and team necessary to transform their sales strategy, increase revenue, and move their business to the next level. Vindex uses a proprietary perfect match system to identify the ideal sales leader matched to their client's unique business requirements with the highest level of precision and assurance. Previously, Henning had been the head of global product management for Bear AG in Germany and had been the Vice President of Global Sales for Novadex. You can learn more about Henning at Vindux.com. That's V-E-N-D-U-X.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Henning. Henning, I'd like to welcome you to the Corporate Couch today. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Yeah, I, I assume you were born in Germany. And so if that is the case, uh, you're our second uh, non-U.S. born uh, guest on the podcast. So my honor. And I can say not only born, but born and raised in Germany. That makes it even worse. Yes. And uh, we'll get to your college experience. And most times I could really understand where somebody went to college because it's usually, you know, a KU, New York University. But we're going to dig into a little bit of your college experience because based on your LinkedIn, I'm not sure. Or, yeah, or the lack thereof. <laughs> all good. All good. Yeah, I'd like to start with a fun question just to kind of kick things off. We've been in the pandemic a little over three years now and Zoom, just like we're conducting this podcast interview. 
been part of our lives now, uh, mainly corporately, but there's some, you know, friendships that have been, uh, people have reconnected via Zoom that uh, they don't live nearby. But what's the craziest attire you've seen someone wear during a professional Zoom call or lack of attire? Wow, that's an interesting question. I, uh, from an attire point of view, I don't think I've seen crazy, crazy. Um, and and I do eight, 10, 12 Zoom calls a day um, and have been doing it for the last three and a half years. But I've not seen crazy attire, what I've seen or crazy backgrounds yeah. Um, yeah. where people don't blur don't use a virtual background and you can tell that you're sitting in their bedroom. Right. You can see the bed made or not in the background. And that to me is a little awkward, is a little eerie. Um, I really don't need to see that. Um, yes. And so I, I mean, I try to create a, as you can see, the audience won't be able to see, try to create a somewhat uh, personal but yet professional background um, and spend you know quite a bit of time and arranging pictures and furniture to make it look um, you know like I said professional but provide a little bit of a personal insight and then have conversation pieces or conversation starters in the picture but from a zoom perspective attire has been um, all over the place but nothing too crazy backgrounds for sure uh, so I I have to ask uh, on the on the the data point of be beds being made or unmade. What what is the percentage of unmade beds in the background, just based on your observation? <laughs> Let's say too many. Okay. <laughs> we had one guest say similar answer to yours. Something like there was a bra hanging over the you know like you know chair or something like that. No background. comment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, we talked about uh, you growing up in Germany. So what, what did you like to do growing up as a child, Henning? Oh, if you go way back, I love to play Lego and puzzle. So those um, things that uh, introverts do play, you know, with themselves, by themselves, using pieces and building things, putting things together. Um, that was probably my childhood in a nutshell. Um, and it took me uh, took me a while to get out of that introvert state and become uh, more of an extrovert and uh, really appreciate meeting people and engaging with people. Yeah. What was your process to do that, to be, become more of extroverted? I had... Um, I attribute it to one life-changing experience, and that was my student exchange year uh, in when I was 16. Uh, at the end of 10th grade, I went abroad for a year, lived with a host family, went to high school, um, and immersed myself in a very different culture. And that was back in 1982 in rural North Carolina, a town of 500 people, one intersection with a flashing red light on top, there was no one speaking German. So in order for me to meet people and to uh, engage, I had to learn A, the language, and B, I had to approach people and talk to them. And to me, in hindsight, that year really changed the direction of, of my life. It turned me from an introvert into 
who I am today, I wouldn't, I would still not label myself an extrovert, but I really enjoy meeting people. And I really like to meet new people uh, again and again and again, find out what they're all about, ask questions, learn from them, and uh, put that all together um, in, 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 in all of that you know, influences me in my life. All these different experiences of meeting people um, helps me shape my life um, as I learn from those conversations. So it was that one life-changing experience as an exchange student in a foreign country. And as a side note, I still, 40 years later, yeah, 40, wow, a big number, 40 years later, still support the idea of student exchange by being a volunteer for a student exchange organization. Right now, I have two students, one from Japan, one from Denmark, here in, in our county that I'm counseling, and we're looking for host families. So anyone listening interested to host, contact me. I'd love to share the, uh, the benefits and the growth opportunities for a family and a community that comes through hosting foreign students in your home. So growing up, uh, what were your aspirations uh, to be as a, a, an adult? Um, you know, a lot of people will say teacher, you know, uh, U.S. born uh, people will say, you know, president of the United States or something, you know, sports. What, what was your dream? Well, the first aspiration I had, and I would say as a child and maybe even an early teen, was to be a captain of a uh, seagoing merchant ship um i just you know thought the idea of being out at sea uh for weeks and months and uh commandeering a ship was something that i would really enjoy doing um so that was my first aspiration and part of it was driven by the fact that my dad um ever since i can remember has been a sailor um, and I very early on joined him on these trips, learned from him and eventually, you know, developed and grew my own skills in sailing, chartering boats. Um, and that took, did away with the idea of doing it as a profession. Um, then sort of in my teens, um, I wanted to be, be a diplomat. I uh, liked the idea of um, being out there and bringing people together, um, and especially in and around my student exchange year, I felt that, you know, I saw the value of bringing people together and learning from each other. And so I felt that I should make that my uh, my profession. It never came to that. I um, eventually ended up entering the commercial world. And, uh, you know, once I was in, in a business, I shaped my career within that. And uh, as I said earlier, I still support the idea of student exchange by being a volunteer for a student exchange organization. Yeah, I love that. Um, we uh, very close uh, friends of ours uh, hosted uh, a uh, Italian male uh, during his senior year in high school here. Uh, so they, it was about nine months and just a great kid. And they, uh, yeah, I think it's a great, great program. So 
It is. It's a wonderful experience. I mean, I could talk for hours about what it brings into a family. We also, as I was growing up, uh, we hosted a student. One of my sisters went abroad. One of my kids went abroad. Um, and I, I truly believe that if you do this at that age, that it really shapes the individual, but it also allows you to become part of a family. It's different when you're older, when you do it as a university student, or if you do it as an au pair, or if you travel. It, those are good experiences, but they are different. When you're 16, 17, you're mendable, you can learn, you're open to learning, actually, and you can become part of a different family. And 40 years later, I still have my German mother, my birth mother, and I do have an American mom that I call mom, and I have American siblings, a sister and two brothers that I refer to as my American brother or my American sister. Yeah, that's very cool. I, I think, and obviously I did not experience, but it seems like you just assimilate more into the culture when you're, you know, at that age and actually living, you know, 24 hours a day, you know, with a, you know, a family of a, you know, a different nationality, different country. Right. You, uh, I mean, you could, you could say that uh, you don't have a choice but to do it um, because you're not there for a week as a visitor. Uh, you're there for almost a year and you become part of the family. If there is something not right, if you were to see yourself as a visitor um, a few months in, or if the family would treat you like a visitor, you just grow together um, and become a family and um and i think that is part of what makes this so such a unique and wonderful experience i assume they called high school in germany i i, I don't know uh but after high school what was, kind of what was your journey after that uh to your professional the first professional job yeah i uh so germany has a slightly different educational system from the us in that only about 30% of all high school graduates actually go to college. Um, the rest go into different types of apprenticeship programs. And so I did a commercial apprenticeship program with um, a chemical company, Bayer. And uh, they, they looked at this training program to be equal to having um, um, a degree, a four-year degree from a university in economics or in business. So a couple of things are different. The first one is you actually get paid while you're in this program as an individual. And so instead of you paying a college a lot of money to be educated, the company pays you to be part of their program. Love that. And <laughs> so that's that's one thing. The second one is that you you train very practical things along the way um, and as part of this program you go within the company through every one of their departments so you spend time in accounting and in procurement and in sales and in marketing and in manufacturing and operations and 
you learn all the ins and outs of the company along the way. So when you're done with your training program, you can actually start working for the company as opposed to someone who comes in after completing college, they still need to go through some sort of trainee program in order to learn the ins and outs of a company and a and this specific company that they join. So those are the advantages. There is a there is there are some differences and disadvantages. It's not as as uh, it is very focused on practical applications. It doesn't include things that the company doesn't consider to be worthwhile. So you get less of a broader education. It is very specific to the needs of the company. Um, and so that's what I did, uh, took three years. Um, and then I continued to stay with Bayer for another 12 or 13 years. Yeah, wow. And we we talked the, the first time we met over Zoom uh, a week ago that, um, you know, we both had that Bayer experience. Yours was a lot longer than mine. But um, yeah, I, uh, it, was a, it was a great company. I, I enjoyed myself uh, there and got to spend some time in uh, uh, Leverkus in the headquarters <laughs> uh, meeting with my uh, global peers. So it was, it was good. So you basically got your first job because you interned at Bayer and then you became a full-time employee, even though you were still getting paid. I don't know if they call it an internship or training program or whatever, but I, it's an interesting model. And I, you know, I, um, I taught at the University of Kansas uh, for the first time this past semester that just ended last month. And, you know, I, I, you know, I think colleges in the U.S. need to change and universities, they need to change their model somewhat. I mean, because... You know, there's so many different ways to learn now. So, you know, how uh, you experienced uh, post high school is, uh, you know, is, I think leads to some discussion on the future of U.S. universities, I think. But that's for another conversation. Um, yeah, so uh, it looked like you did a lot of, you know, supply chain um, uh the manufacturing tell tell us about your early career and your and your major learnings at, at Bayer. I in, in hindsight looking back at that part of my career I spent 12 13 years and basically every year to 18 months I my my role changed and I progressed through the organization um and took on different roles and a big piece was on logistics and supply chain. Um, and it just turned out that I, th that that's an area I enjoyed in the area where, you know, I, I, I did well and therefore had increasing responsibilities in that accumulating in a role where I you know, ran a warehouse, ran a packaging facility for um, you know, an, a six hundred thousand, six hundred million dollar business, and it was it was a fun experience. It was very rewarding, and my transition into sales sort of came in two steps. The first step was that um, at some point I was uh, transferred into the U.S. to uh, run supply chain uh, for a facility in New Martinsville, West Virginia and to manage imports from Europe coming into the US. And 
at some point, someone thought that it would be a good idea for me to also experience sales. So they put me in charge of uh, the eastern half of the U.S. and Mexico. So I had a few salespeople and a couple of distributors to manage. And um, that was it was an interesting experience because it came on top of my supply chain responsibilities. And I had no prior experience in sales. So I'd never been an individual contributor before leading, um, you know, a business of several hundred million dollars of sales. Um, and I made my fair share of mistakes and had my fair share of learnings in that in that role. And the, the second and then final transition into sales came um, after uh, something that was called e-business hit the industry back in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s. And it's it's hard to even imagine what it was like because at that point, there was no know-how and no usage of the internet other than maybe some some emails going back and forth. And I remember that, um, you know, I worked, I ran a supply chain team at the time and GE came to Bayer and said, Bayer, uh, we want to invite you to to a meeting on, on our campus where we bring our suppliers together and we want to hear from you what you're doing in e-business. And at the time, no one knew what that even meant. And my boss, uh, who headed the division, thought that it had to do it had something to do with logistics and so that's why he dropped it on my desk and we made up something and went out there and presented and apparently it was good enough because within 10 months that part of my job mushroomed from 5 to 80% um i had three full-time people working with me on e-business projects and it just it was a, a phenomenal gold digger time where uh, Bayer and many other companies were willing to invest money uh, in order to not miss out on the the one out of 10 or one out of 20 e-business ventures that would eventually end up being successful. And so that, you know, that whole engagement led me to actually leave Bayer, join an e-business startup, um, and it was all about sales from from then onward. Yeah, so interesting and so many different ways we can take this. But I'd love to hear about, so you're running, you know, you move to the U.S., uh, which a lot of bare corporate people do to gain U.S. experience. So you go, and then who was responsible for putting somebody in charge of, you know, half of the East Coast and Mexico in terms of a sales organization? where you have no sales experience, you know, you haven't sold anything since selling, you know, uh, you know, beer. At Myself a, to the company. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you um, why that happened. Um, well, uh, a part of all of that is the, the, you know, companies, Good companies, uh, companies that take leadership seriously and that take uh, employee development seriously, look at individuals and try to, you know, grow them and give them exposure to 
a variety of different areas um, because I believe that's how you grow leaders. You don't grow leaders by keeping them in a silo. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough that I was given a lot of these opportunities um, very early in my career. And um, I, I do believe in addition to making a lot of mistakes, I also uh, justified the trust uh, by delivering results in the jobs that I had. Yeah, so interesting. So, I mean, you have no sales experience and of course you're going to make mistakes and, and kudos to Bayer for having that mentality, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, they saw you were high potential employee for them, but what was your process to learn? So, you know, you seem like a lifelong learner and here you are, no, nothing about sales, essentially. What was your learning process? You know, I wish I could sit here and say, this is my process, uh, copy it and you'll be successful. Back then in that, that stage of my career, I don't, I don't, I did not have a process. It, it, you know, maybe I did do something and learn something uh, in order to be successful, but it wasn't based on a process. It's not like I could sit here and say, I read 10 books or I, did this, or I took this online course, or I took talk to these people. Um, I do remember that on the one hand, I felt very confident because I knew the product and I knew everything that was happening on the inside. So when clients were asking questions about the, the product, about the, 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 the delivery, the warehousing, the packaging, the different sources, I was very comfortable being able to address those questions. But I also remember that I was very nervous um, when it came to commercial discussions, for example, because I'd not ever engaged in those. And I, I'll share one story that I remember to this day. Uh, and, and so some of these things are take, the world sometimes turns out to be really small. So we were going, so, I was selling iron oxide pigment. The two core applications for that is anything concrete that is colored in uh, uh, in orange, red, yellow, brown, black, uh, sound walls, pavers, roof tiles, that's all iron oxide pigment. Mm -hmm. um, the other main application is coatings. So a lot of paint formulations contain iron oxide pigment. And um, one of the new applications that came up was coloring of mulch. Um, it's something very uh, unique to the U.S. Um, many European countries don't even know what mulch is, but here in the U.S., um, we have it and we color it um, because we want consistent color in our front yards. And if they if they uh, do it the cheap way and uh, chop up old pallets and other waste wood, you need color so that it looks nice. And so we educated um, and helped a lot of companies develop their formulations so that they could color mulch and sell it. And we were a premium supplier um, at the time. Our pricing was high, um, especially compared to cheap Chinese imports. And so we were invited to this one mulch supplier uh, or a mulch client of ours who um, we had helped uh, extensively with our technology. 
Um, and as we sat down, the owner expressed his gratitude for our help uh, and then went on to say that he had an offer from a Chinese supplier for the same material at a third of the price. And <laughs> the inexperienced me said, well, congratulations. Um, congratulations on finding um, this new supplier. Uh, we uh, are not going to respond or match um, anything here. I just wish you all the best with your supplier. And then I got up and left. We didn't lose, uh, I didn't lose my job over this. We did lose the client um, because he did go with the competitor um, out of China. And it was a just a tremendous sort of in hindsight, a tremendous learning experience for me because I was extremely ill-prepared to properly address the situation. And we should have known beforehand that that's exactly what they were going to bring up. So in hindsight, it was just a lack of prep and a lack of understanding what this call was going to be about. Because, you know, with prep, the the question could have been addressed in a many different way, and, and the, the discussion could have taken many different directions. The fun part, and that's why I said earlier, it's a small world, the technical director of that mulch manufacturer, two jobs further down the line, ended up being a colleague of mine and a really good friend for the next 10 years. Mm. Um, we just sort of drifted apart and then came back together. Um, and, you know, we both remember this, this meeting and this conversation. And <laughs> like I said, a learning experience, not something I would say I'm particularly proud of. It's, uh, um, it just showed me the value of preparing. Sure. But do you think even if you were prepared, that that client would have signed with you? Well, the in the long run, the the whole story um, of the the marketplace for this product turned out to go into a direction where um, Bayer or later the successors of Bayer are were able to produce product in different places to different standards that was less expensive and on the at the same on the same at the same time manufacturing cost in china went up so that at at the end there ended up being a level playing field again the challenge at the time was that our product we weren't just a premium supplier of the same product we were um, a a manufacturer of a product made to much narrower specifications um, because it was product made for the coatings industry um, or the construction industry, which needed much narrower specs. Because if you if you paint and then come back a year later and use the same paint um, again, it needs to match. When you pave a street and you 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 it doesn't work that you you need you it needs to be consistent in the in the coloring and and even after 
you know, 10 or 15 years, it needs to be consistent. So um, it was just uh, in, in mulch. I mean, how, how fast does mulch disintegrate? A year, two, maybe with bleaching, the bleaching of the sun uh, and the disintegration of the wood. So the solution and the discussion should have been around product specifications and product quality. And what can we do to create less expensive product to broader specs matching what you know our Chinese competitors were doing at the time? Yeah, that's very interesting. And I, what I love too is, you know, there's, you know, kind of two times, you know, in, um, in your Bayer career, um, where you didn't really have a, a career plan. And I say that and with no disrespect, but a lot of the guests on the podcast, you know, they, things happen. And, you know, I, I'm a believer, all things happen for a reason, but you get into sales, which you didn't have a plan to be a, into sales. And then you, you were in a time of, you know, gr you know, innovation. I, I, I was at a internet startup during that boom period in the late nineties, early two thousands. And, you know, so you become an e-business expert. So you're a pioneer in the space. Right, so it's it's very interesting from that perspective. So um, at that point, you get recruited away from Bayer to go to the the, the startup, at, which I believe was Chemidex, or correct. Yeah. And interestingly enough, Overland Park, Kansas, is where uh, the company was, and the business still is headquartered. And uh, yes, they uh, they first came to Bayer when I was in charge of e-business and sold us the idea of a, a search engine for chemicals. And we uh, participated um, in the search engine. And then the founder, Bruciani, came back a year later and said, um, if I asked if I was interested in joining and uh, building, initially building the European business for him, which uh, after some deliberation and a visit to Kansas City, I was. Yeah, yeah, and we talked uh, earlier about uh, Jim Dodd, who I had worked with at Sprint, uh, became president uh, yes. of the company. So I was very familiar with this. So, what were your key learnings there? Because you kind of more from Chemidex to uh, Novadex, and then got purchased by uh, UL Universal Laboratories. So, t tell us yeah. about that journey. Well, there are a lot of learnings <laughs> along the way. Uh, um, uh, value of a brand, right? When you when you sell for Bayer, uh, um, then the, that logo gets you in the door. When you sell for Chemidex, a startup out of Overland Park, Kansas in Europe, that is not a door opener. Nobody knows the company. Plus, you are a small newcomer based in the U.S. Who knows how reliable you are? and how uh, how long you'll be around. I also learned the value of stick to itiveness and being persistent and following a process because it wasn't easy at the beginning to sell the service to into a very conservative industry. The, uh, the chemical industry is innovative on the product side, but very conservative on the the process side and um in especially if you if you consider 
they are not it's not a sales driven world you build chemical plants for for 30 or 50 years and that's your horizon your time horizon that you think about most of the volume chemicals are their their um their cost are driven by uh, utilization rates so you know the difference between and i'm making these numbers up 90 or 92 percent of utilization can make mean the difference between being profitable or not and so it's first and foremost about producing a certain volume of product in order to be profitable and then thinking about selling as secondary you just have to get rid of the product and sell it <laughs> and, and that makes the business successful there is really not a thought of producing something for a client for a specific client once the order comes in if for for many many products that are produced in a continuous or semi-continuous process in the chemical industry and so in that in to go into that environment with a new way of marketing your products um, having to push out the incumbents uh, which would be trade shows or uh, trade journal advertising at the time uh, was a very long process it just took a really long time to to establish this as a viable marketing and, and sales support effort uh, in the chemical industry and uh so you had to stick to it um, and and just be very persistent in your approach. And, you know, many companies that I contacted very early on in this stage, it took them three, four, five years to become clients because they were not willing to be first movers or even early, uh, you know, early followers or early adopters. Um, of a solution that they had that they had not heard about. Yeah, interesting. So in in those early days, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently in the sales process? The probably the one big mistake that I made is to spread myself too thin. So if you think of Europe, there are you know there are 20 25 major countries that that have somewhat of a chemical industry and instead of visiting all 25 i should have focused on just a handful of countries with concentration as an example i traveled to norway three times on business during the early years for one company who and never ended up becoming a client. But I felt important, it felt important to me at the time to show presence in the country and to be able to tell this client, hey, I'm traveling in your neck of the woods. Do you have time to see me? I mean, that was all pre, pre-internet, pre, pre-Zoom calls, so, you know, you, you could call, but you wouldn't sell anything unless you were there in person. And, and so 
focus probably would have helped doing an exploratory trip, for example, to the UK, and then saying, I'm going to stay away from it because most chemical companies at the time in the UK were small. They were even back then UK focused, not globally focused, and therefore they weren't really good targets for us. So I that's definitely in hindsight something that we could have done differently at the time. Major learning. Yeah, excellent. I would say uh, you know both. I think sales professionals are both born and made, and I think you're an example of the latter, and which I think is actually a it gives you more perspective because you had to learn versus kind of be naturally gifted at it. So I th I think it, it helps you become a better sales leader going the second way. But I would what, what in your opinion, uh, Henning, is the uh, the biggest mistake a sales sales professionals make or the most frequent mistake? What in your opinion? There are plenty. <laughs> Top <laughs> three. Plenty of, <laughs> of mistakes. I so let's not just put the focus on the sales professional. Let's look at it organizationally because you don't ever have a sales professional sort of loosely hanging there and and doing their own thing unless someone is letting them do that. So to me, and this is hindsight after 25 years in sales, it's all about leadership. And you know, it, it is the leadership of the company that uh, needs to prioritize and create a sales focus. So I, I believe that organizations are successful when they're when they are sales centric. There are arguments out there where people say, well, they have to be customer centric, which is correct. But companies only generate income when somebody is selling the product or service that they're making. And in many companies, when sales is more of an afterthought, when sales is an, an isolated, siloed experience, and the rest of the organization is not sales-centric, that is a disadvantage. And so business ownership, the CEO, the founder needs to create a sales-centric culture where everyone understands that everyone ultimately services clients and as as a way to get there, services sales because sales is the interface to the client in most organizations. So that that's one thing. And then sales leadership. So if you are the director of sales, the VP of sales, the chief sales or chief revenue officer of an organization, your job is to make sure that salespeople don't make mistakes. So whatever mistakes they're making is in my opinion at the end of the day lack of leadership so if they're if they're not cut out for the job if they're an ill fit guess who hired them if they're not following a sales process guess who's responsible for ensuring that the sales process is followed if they discount when you're not um, when you shouldn't be discounting the product because it's detrimental to the business guess whose responsibility that is. It's all about leadership. And 
and and there are these are the mistakes that I see salespeople make. They don't follow the process. They don't believe in the process, and and um, I mean, and you can see it when you come to the end of a month or the end of a quarter, and they're desperately focused on two or three deals that they've told you that would come through, um, but they've told you that for the last six months. Those are the only things that they're focused on instead of focusing on the entire funnel. And while they're looking to get these deals across the finish line, they also need to focus on bringing new opportunities into the hopper so that there is a continuous flow of opportunities in the pipeline. Discounting is another mistake. I mean, I get contacted by vendors every day and most of them come in the door before I even know what the product is or the service by saying how cheap they are, how great a deal they're offering right now, how much uh, less expensive they are to any current solution I might be using. It's all about price. It's never about value. And so I believe that discounting diminishes the value of the product. It sets bad precedent. It creates an expectation. And anyone who has ever tried to sell on an introductory discount will tell you that that discount sticks around. So I I bought a new car. Uh, it came with satellite radio. Um, the first year was free because it was part of the deal. And then they charged a rate. And then a year later, I suddenly noticed on my bill that they were charging three times as much. And when I called them, they said, well, yeah, it was an introductory discount. And then I said, well, I'm going to cancel the service. It's not worth what you're charging now. And then they were very quick to say, well, yeah, how about if we continue the same low rate for another year? It's just, it doesn't make sense. It, yeah. you know, my expect my value perception of that satellite radio provider was a certain dollar number per month and not three times that. So once you establish that, you'll never get it back up. Yeah, my wife did that same process three different times. <laughs> it got the same introductory price. So I have two more, two more years to go. At least. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you're at Bayer 12-ish years, Chemidex, Novadex, UL for looks like another about 17. So 29 years. So you're loyal, you know, uh, to two companies. And then in um, 2019, you decide to start your own company. So talk about that thought process and what was your why behind that? Yeah. So after t um, 20 some years of leading sales teams, um, it felt old to me. It felt like I wasn't learning anything anymore. The, 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 the discussions around achievement in sales that happen every week, every month, every quarter, every year, they're, they, they're always the same. There's nothing new in it. The, the, the reasons that you get from a sales rep on why they didn't hit numbers were always the same. The, the arguments from from leadership and management as to what we needed to do and why we needed to do it 
were always the same and there was nothing new for me to learn. And at the same time, I felt I had um, learned enough to be able to help companies. The When I was, for the most part, when I was selling for Chemidex, Anovadex, and UL, I was selling into sales and marketing organizations. So on a daily, weekly basis, I was interacting with sales and marketing leaders. And I I looked at these interactions and I, especially at the time when you had a lot of face-to-face meetings, you know, you walk into a building, you, you register, you go into a conference room, there's a group of people, sales and marketing professionals for the most part, you know, you have your meeting, your presentation. And so for an hour, hour and a half, you get exposed to their culture and how they're interacting with each other. and and, and how they're equipped and, you know, what is leadership like? And there were probably a handful or maybe two handful of companies that I walked out of and said, wow, I would love to work here. This is a great culture, a great atmosphere. The vast majority, in my opinion, needed help. <laughs> they needed help in uh, in culture, in technology, in understanding of how to go about selling their product. And that experience led me to say, well, how about if I go out and help? How about if I become a fractional executive, an interim executive that comes in, helps, fixes, builds, and then moves on and does the same thing for another company? That was my game plan back in 2019. And I discovered two things real quick. The first one was I was not well-connected enough. I had spent 25 years in the same vertical chemical industry. I had not built connections to founders or owners or investors or board members. And those people who would decide whether to bring in a fractional or interim executive. And then I looked for an agent who could represent me, a a matchmaker, and I could not find one. There were matchmakers out there that covered the entire C-suite, but that to me meant that they weren't paying attention to me because sales leaders are not always C-suite executives. A VP or an SVP of sales is not necessarily a C-suite executive. And so... With that in mind, I said, you know, what I am missing, others must be missing too. The mat, a matchmaker in this space of sales leadership with a focus on fractional or interim sales leadership roles. And that's when I decided I was just going to build that uh, matchmaker. I got together with uh, a friend of mine who I had worked with before at Anovadex. Uh, who came in as a co-founder, um, and the two of us launched Vendux together. Hey, how long did it take you to realize that that you didn't have that you know you were just in one vertical chemical manufacturing for so long and kind of pivot with your your business idea? Not very long, uh, maybe four weeks or six weeks. Oh wow! Okay, because I was out there looking for opportunities and it didn't take long to realize that. And uh, I, I mean, especially that second step, looking for someone who could help me. 
if the difference is a, a few a few percentage points, I gladly pay somebody to bring me into an assignment. But there wasn't a matchmaker in place. So um, with or without my own connections, the, it was more the lack of a dedicated matchmaker that made me realize that I that if I were to pivot and build that, that that's a business opportunity. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's incredible. So you're basically in the fractional CSO, VP of Sales, Senior VP of Sales, uh, Chief Revenue Officer space. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand the fractional idea, but you know, how do you define it, and why do you love the space? Well, I spent twelve, well, pre-acquisition, eleven years with a startup business. And I am forever grateful to Bruce Yanni, the founder, that he stuck with me through those 11 years because it was an 11-year continuous learning process where, you know, I started out being the sales team in, in Europe. I hired people down the road, I, you know, then expanded, helped expand into Asia and open up an office in China and then Latin America. So it was a continuous journey, um, taking the business from zero to 10 million from, you know, one country globally uh, into, into the global realm. And while I'm grateful for the experience and the learnings, in hindsight, it probably would have been better to fractionalize that and to say, I need someone with experience in China. And so I'm going to put someone in charge of that experience uh, of that expansion. I need someone to get the business off the ground. Let's get someone to do that. I need the European sales team is three or four salespeople strong instead of having a player coach, which I was at the time, let's have a fractional sales leader lead those sales efforts and take the rest of the money and get another sales rep on the team. So in hindsight, that 11 year journey could have been broken up into chunks. And I would argue that by doing that, you get a very focused, approach you bring in just the right amount of skill set and just the right amount of time and with it the investment and cost for each one of those building blocks over an 11 year period and that's what fractionalizing means to me and i believe it leads to a better and and faster growth journey because especially in the early phases startups wait so long with the next hire until they can barely make it because that next hire comes with a big price tag. And so they wait really, really long and then bring in a full person. And then that journey starts over again. And the better way is to go in small steps, go in increments. And you can you can bring in the skill set much sooner that way. And that skill set can have an impact much sooner. Plus, you're not waiting and 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 spreading your existing resources so thin that they can't focus on what they're actually tasked with and what they're actually good at. 
So when you're dealing with these CEOs and, um, you know, you, you can see you can add value to them. What is the profile that the, that CEO in terms of being open to fractional? You know, what, what is that person like? Well, it would be it would be easier for us as a as a business if we were to pin be able to pin down that executive in and describe him um you know in its entirety for for our own targeting purposes um the the commonality across whether it's a, a ceo whether it's a founder or an owner of a business that we engage with the commonality is that they have a problem in sales that they're willing to admit to the problem and they're willing to do something about it and because it's a problem in sales they come to us because they 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 feel they think they've heard that we can help them and then we have a conversation and we talk about what is your current state of sales where are you looking to take the business in the next three, six, nine months? What what's a, what what is missing today? And all of that then shapes an assignment opportunity. Sometimes it is not an assignment for a fractional sales leader. Sometimes we send them away and say, you need a fractional CMO and you need to talk to XYZ about it. Or sometimes we say, this is all operational. This isn't a sales problem. Your your back office is the problem. You need to fix that first. But because it's sales and growth and revenue related, often the outcome of the scoping conversation is an assignment for a fractional sales leader. So the, the common thread is this, this process. And of course, at that point, the founder, owner, or CEO needs to be willing to bring in a fractional executive, a fractional contractor into an important role within the company. Because if their problem is sales and growth and the solution they bring in is a contractor that works 10, 15 hours a week for them, they need to believe that that person will be able to accomplish those goals. And one of the prerequisites for that is that the job at hand is truly something that can be accomplished on a fractional basis. And that's when we talk about the goals. Um, it needs to be clear at that point that those goals can be reached by someone putting in 10 or 15 hours a week. If at that point it's clear, that's never going to happen, right? This this is a full blown effort. We need you know not one but two full time people there in order to get to those goals. Then it's it's our job to say at that point of the conversation, this is our conclusion, and you know then it can go one of two ways. One would be to adjust the goals to be more fitting to a fractional role, or to say, okay, thank you then let's find a full-time person. And so in the, I mean, you went from uh, obviously starting it in 2019, 2019 I believe in that yeah. time frame. So four weeks in, you decide, you know, you need to pivot. 
And now you build almost like 600 independent consultants principles under your uh, logo uh, as independent contractors. Like what one that's phenomenal. So what was your process there as well as well? What is the biggest learning been since you have had all these people uh, working as independent contractors for you? Well, it's important to be really clear in the communication, especially on the executive, on the on the contractor side, right? We're a matchmaker that brings together those contractors with companies. Uh, we need to clearly communicate on both sides, obviously. But when it comes to executives, we have a roster of 650 pre-vetted executives today. And I, I always use the phrase that we're in a non-committed relationship to each other. We're non-exclusive. My goal is not to fill an executive's schedule to the max. My role is that of a sales channel. And like every good sales organization, an executive selling their own services should pursue a multi-channel strategy, meaning we're never the only one. We don't want to be the only one. The executive should also be out there using their own network, growing their own network, actively networking. They should look at other channels. We're not the only one. We are the only one with focus on sales, but there are others out there with a broader focus. And so um, as an executive, look at all these channels, be aware of them, and then choose who you want to work with. That is an executives, a solopreneur's best bet, in my opinion, for creating an, a fully and, and consistently loaded work schedule. And our focus is more on the client side, because when we scope an assignment for a client, we really want to be able to find the one executive that can truly claim to be the perfect fit for this role. And, and that's, in our my opinion, someone that has done almost the exact thing that the uh, company sets out to accomplish before. And the exact thing doesn't mean just, uh, you know, I, I've been a VP of sales and chemicals, but um, I've sold to similar decision makers, a similar product or service along a similar length of sales cycle, uh, similar deal sizes, uh, similar type or focus of the sales process. So these are all things that define a sales scenario. And we look for someone who has done that particular sales scenario before. And with that, we feel that we're bringing the perfect match into the organization and with it, the biggest chances of success. Yeah. I, I, I just love the fractional model. I think it's uh, definitely, uh, as we talked about offline, I mean, I think the CFO fractional model is the most mature, but I think what you're doing is phenomenal and to have 650, you know, sales uh, leaders, uh, CROs, CSOs, uh, VPs is uh, incredible and a testament to what you built in, in the last four years. Um, Henning, I always like to help two different groups of people. So I ask uh, great uh, leaders like yourself, uh, their thoughts on uh, one for the recent college graduates of the 
person just graduated last month in May. They're looking at their first uh, professional career job. And I know you didn't have the traditional U.S. college university experience, but what advice would you give them as they pursue their first job out of college? Wow, that's a a difficult question to answer. Um, And you pointed out, especially for me, I I think... um, I'll I'll wave a flag for sales here because um in in my opinion sales is a is a a very professional role it's a it's an area where you know you you can learn you can grow you can uh, you can develop just as much as in any other role um it is not something where you just step in because you're great at talking to people. I mean, those days are long gone where that's the only qualification you needed to bring to the table or being able to lie or cheat. Uh, it's it's a process. Um, it's a team sport. It's um, it, it, it uses data and technology. And, um, and so to me, it is... It has to be viewed as something very professional, and uh, I, I tend to cite um, reputational statistics that put doctors and nurses at the top, um, and salespeople tend to score really low on on trust uh, on any of those trust surveys. And I, you know, I would hope that over time that changes because the used car salesman is is truly a thing of the past. They might still exist in some industries, but for the most part, if you're in B2B, if you're in tech, um, if you're in, in any manufacturing sales, it is everything I said before, process, team, data, technology, and with it has to come a very professional approach. So don't be shy to go into sales. That would be my message. Yeah, that's great. We, I have not heard that piece of advice before, but I think it's phenomenal, especially what you say. It's not the you know the, you know the seventies, eighties, nineties, early two thousands in terms of the sales process and having the gift of gab. You know, the buyer, the customer now has the power uh, with all the information available, and they're much more mature in the buying process. To, to even when they engage a salesperson to start talking to, you know, different perspectives, uh, uh, you know, partners. So, yeah. So the second group I like to help is, uh, you know, the person out of college, you know, usually is an individual contributor, but then they get a role where they're uh, leading a team for the first time. Uh, and while everybody can be a leader, whether you're an individual contributor or have uh, direct reports and a team underneath you, what advice would you give them when they actually get a team underneath them in, in an org structure in terms of their professional leadership journey? Well, the the simple answer is be a leader, not a manager. But of course, the devil is uh, is in the detail there. What, what does that even mean, right? Um, to me, a manager is someone who merely executes existing processes, who um, you know goes through the the notions that you're supposed to go through when you manage people. You know, you have your one-on-ones because you tend to have one-on-ones. You have your sales meetings. You have your call listening. You you know whatever the your 
company does, whatever the sales process requires, you um, execute those things because that's what you do in as a manager. Uh, a leader is, to me, someone different. A leader is someone who who is able to inspire um, and who's able to generate trust, who's able to, um, you know, have have people follow them not because they have to but because they want to and you don't get there by executing steps you get there by often taking a first step in doing something differently by empowering by showing empathy by being a phenomenal listener by taking time even if your calendar doesn't allow you to take time because it's about people. Uh, leadership is about people. It's not about the product or the service or the revenue or the client or reporting up. It's about the people that you work with. And from my own experience, I tend to say often that I, you know, you could have woken me up in the middle of the night and said, Henning, you know, give give a presentation on the Chemidex platform. And I would have been able to do that. It was it was so ingrained in me. The much harder part of leadership is the responsibility for people. And how do you how do you do that? How do you engage with people? And there is a lot of great advice out there and some good examples of what constitutes great leadership, especially in sales. Yeah, I love that. I mean, uh, Sprint had some great training. Uh, so uh, one of the things I never forgot, uh, and I don't know if it's a quote from somebody famous or just it was an internal Sprint quote, but it was, you know, you you manage processes and you lead people. And you, you said both of those things. So I, I love it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Henning, you're you're phenomenal. I, you're, you're just uh, love your career journey and what you're doing now with uh, your company and it's Vendux, right? Correct. Vendux is Latin. Yeah. So Go not ahead. French. Yeah. Latin. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, Latin, not French. And it's uh, Latin. Uh, it's a two different Latin words for sales. And then uh, ducks is uh, leader, right? Leadership. So sales leader, yeah. leadership. Yeah, I love exactly. that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed having you on the corporate couch. Thank you, Jeff, for having me. I enjoyed the conversation tremendously. Yes. Have a great rest of the day. I just thought Henning had a fascinating career. You know, he started out in supply chain logistics, whole college, and I'll put college in quotes, experience in Germany it was phenomenal. But what I loved, besides his pivot from supply chain to sales, when I asked him the question about, you know, what is the most common era you see with sales professionals? He really spun it and talked about sales leadership and having a sales-centric culture for a company. So I really love that piece. I had never really heard that perspective before. And I love what he's doing in the fractional space. I just think these startup companies, as Henning pointed out, they wait so long to hire a seasoned professional, whether that be sales, a chief revenue officer, a VP of sales, a CFO, a COO, a CMO. CIO, they just wait too long. And his business model to provide that with 650 professionals, and he focuses only on sales. I think that is just one of the growing industries 
that we'll see in the next several years. Joe, what was your take on the episode? Yeah, it's 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 all about leadership, and it has to start there with sales leadership. Was the the point that he was making? So you don't have to wait until you're huge to exhibit sales leadership. You do that from the beginning. I'm tickled to death that to be working on this podcast and getting such a wide variety of talent in a wide variety of industries. So this is the first time we've been in the chemical industry. I know absolutely nothing. Nada, nothing about the chemical industry. And so every word that he said about the chemical industry, I just I just hung on it because I just thought it was so fascinating. It was such a neat experience to um, to learn about something that I'd never seen before or never had any connection with before. And the other thing you, you already know that I grew up very, very isolated in a small town in northeast Missouri. and. So I sometimes have the tendency to believe that the way that we do things here is the way that the world does things. And so I need to be reminded every once in a while, for instance, that the German post-secondary educational system is completely different than what it is in America. And I think we can probably learn a lot from that. The fact that not everybody goes to college not everybody's expected to go to college. Yeah, I, it was the minority, a vast minority. Yeah, vast minority, right. And in America, what are they trying to do? They're trying to make college free so everybody will go to it. Well, all you're going to end up with there is four years of a bunch of people's time wasted and a bunch of money wasted because they shouldn't be there in the first place. They should and, a lot be, of beer, and a lot of beer pong tournaments. And a lot of beer pong tournaments uh, because everything's going to be on a pass-fail system or Something like, you know, the great inflation that, that's going on in college now. So if that's the way that they do post-secondary education in Germany, they're doing something right because that worked for him. And another thing that I liked about that is that the company assumed the risk of the education, right? And they could terminate it if it was appropriate, or they could scoot him over somewhere else. So he could start out in finance and then he could scoot over into sales and he could scoot over into marketing and he could scoot over into product development. He could do all sorts of stuff. And he got paid for going. And he got paid for doing it, right? But the company is the one that's accepting the risk, yeah. not, not the government and not the student. And as a result, then they get the reward because they get a devoted employee as a result. I was just amazed that that's the way that it worked out. It was, it was a lot of fun to listen to him. Yeah, absolutely. So based on Henning's conversation uh, on the podcast, what leadership advice would you give the audience today? We are going to go to the subcontinent of India to the great philosopher named Rajesh Kupferpali, who one time said, that doesn't make up for the fact that I had to make chicken and rice with a vegan guy. Do you know what vegan chicken and rice is? Rice. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.